Thanks to the chapel band for leading us in worship and uh, always a uh, great privilege to welcome parents and uh, students who understand the will of God perfectly and so they're going to come to the Master's College. <laughs> we are really, really excited to have you here. Um, I uh, just uh, want to begin today by saying I had the opportunity uh, for uh, a few weeks to go over to... Uh, to Europe and to trek around uh, Scotland. In fact, I spent a good deal of the time uh, being carted around by Ian Murray, who is uh, really the founder of the Banner of Truth Trust, a great theologian, a great church historian, and he gave me a kind of personal tour of Scotland and unpacked uh, his insights into Scottish church history. It was a great, great experience for myself and my wife Patricia and and then uh, not only to go into the borderlands of Scotland in the south and learn some of the history there, but in the, the middle part of Scotland and, and then uh, up into the north. It was kind of fun. That, uh, we went into the quad at the new college of the University of Edinburgh in the city of Edinburgh, and I was standing there looking at a great huge statue of John Knox with a pose like this and uh, sort of the Scottish version of the Heisman. And... Uh, uh, we were standing there, and, and a young man came up to me uh, who uh, introduced himself to me and said he's a, he's a Ph.D. student there uh, studying um, the global church for a doctorate. He uh, 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 knew of our church and, of course, had been at our church, and his sister had, uh, had attended our church for an extensive period of time, so it was fun to kind of reconnect with, uh, with one, of our, one of our own there. And uh, then I realized that we have three... Actually, we have three folks from Grace Church, two graduates of the Master Seminary doing their Ph.D. at Edinburgh, uh, which was a, a wonderful thing to find out about. Um, our, our graduates are spreading around the world. And uh, it, it reminded me just to kind of begin today by, by letting you know that uh, if you go back into the 16th and 17th century, you go back into the 1500s, 1600s, and even into the 1700s, all theologians were pastors. All theologians were pastors. If you were a pastor, you were a theologian. If you were a pastor, you certainly knew Greek. You had mastered Greek. You also had to have mastered Latin because much of what you read was in Latin. And uh, by, the, by the 17th century, you would have mastered Hebrew as well. The 16th century, the Hebrew language hadn't quite yet been discovered, so somebody like John Knox, who is mid-16th century, um, decried the fact that he wasn't familiar with, with Hebrew. We think of John Knox as a fiery Reformed preacher. You might want to know that his career started as a professor of philosophy and uh, theology at St. Andrews University, the third most significant Andrew, uh, university in the U.K., um, all of those early pastors were theologians. It wasn't until after the Enlightenment that there was the great divorce between the church and the academy, and it came about as the Enlightenment developed with its um, humanism, with its uh, sort of utilitarianism, and it began to turn on the church that this split came and the university became the source of academia, intellectualism, and even theologians found their way into the academy and 
left the church. It was one of the saddest times in church history. It was the great divorce. And now here we are today, a few hundred years later, and nobody, basically nobody expects their pastor to be a theologian. Not a theologian on the level of people you know to be a theologian who teach theology in a university or a seminary. In fact, you, you, you think of pastors as some kind of a broker, a broker of somebody else's theology. He's a, he's, a kind of a, he's a kind of an eclectic bird who picks and chooses from other people who think deeply about Scripture and pulls it together and basically brokers somebody else's depth of understanding. But in the time of the Reformation and immediately after, before the devastating effect of uh, the Enlightenment, the development of atheism, humanism, and all of that secularism that came out of the Enlightenment, all theologians were pastors. And your theology was essentially what you taught people in your church. I visited the church of, uh, of Samuel Rutherford, who next to John Knox would be the greatest theologian in Scottish Reformation history. Samuel Rutherford preached to a congregation of 125 people in a little tiny church in a, in a village called Anwath. Preached there for 11 years. He was profound enough to have written all kinds of books. John Knox's writings are, would fill a shelf of that much space. They were consummate theologians. One of the objectives that, that I have uh, for the Master Seminary is to produce theologians. We don't, we don't do Bible exposition as an end in itself. We do Bible exposition in order to understand theology. Because where you're going with all your treatment of the text is to form a doctrinal understanding that is systematic throughout Scripture. So the ultimate end of exposition is not in moving people emotionally or even explaining a given passage. It is to build a systematic, uniform theology so that people have an established framework for their convictions so they can live their lives according to the revelation of God. We need to be theologians. Not enough to get emotionally moved. It's not enough to hear entertaining stories. It's not enough for preachers to tell jokes and keep our attention. Pastors need to be theologians. The objective that we have with training men is to make them expositors because the only legitimate theologian is an expositor. That's why if you go back into the 15th and 16th century, what you have is men preaching the Scripture, and then out of their understanding of the Scripture, putting together theology. No, no matter how you study the Bible, you must end up with a coherent, systematic theology because God doesn't contradict himself. That then becomes the framework for everything we believe. So when you reach back into that era and you start reading 16th century, 17th century, even drifting a little bit into the 18th century, writers, you, you read uh, the Reformers, you read even the Puritans and some of the, the, the folks who followed in their train, you're, you're engulfed in a handling of the Word of God that is rich in theology. Well, that, that is gone from the church largely today. You have abysmal ignorance of theology in the pew because you have complete indifference to theology in most pulpits. We need to call for pastors to be theologians. They have abandoned their duty. And I would say simply, there is no, there is no profession that I know of in the world where the people in it are less clear about what they're supposed to do. If you're a lawyer, you know what you're supposed to do. If you're a doctor, you know what you're supposed to do. If you're a professor, you know what you're supposed to do. If you're an accountant, you know what you're supposed to do. If you're a pastor, there's a good chance you have no idea what you're supposed to do. How bizarre is that? 
And theology is the queen of the sciences. Theology matters more than anything else because God matters more than anything else and divine truth matters more than anything else. I want you to think theologically. We want to see people become theologians who think deeply about Scripture. The academy produces that even now, even if it's bad theology, and we all admit that it is. But the academy produces that because it patronizes research, and it patronizes study, and it pays people to become intellectual and to think deeply. The church wants to hire middle managers who run around spinning plates, gives little time, little consideration for people to think deeply about the Word of God. So uh, we want to we keep working to change that, to change that. Master Seminary, the Master's College is devoted for those who are going to go into pastoral ministry at any level, whether it's around the world or in the United States. We want you to be theologians. We want you to be able to, to understand doctrine at its deepest, highest, widest level. Now, with that in mind, uh, a little theology this morning, all right? You ready? The year was 1644. The place was Westminster Abbey in London. The room was called the Jerusalem Room. And the greatest theological minds and biblical scholars in England gathered together. They were all pastors, essentially. Samuel Rutherford was one of them. He was there. Uh, They gathered to spend five years of intense study and discussion. And out of that five years, they wanted to produce a statement of theology that was broad enough to cover all the main doctrines of Scripture. There were essentially a hundred of these men. They were called the divines. There were names like Thomas Goodwin, James Usher, J.B. Lightfoot, Samuel Rutherford, William Triss, who was the chair, Jeremiah Burroughs, names of Puritans that you know. By 1649, five years later, they had completed what became the most important Christian creed. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. In that creed are statements about what the Bible teaches doctrinally. They draw the principles out of the text. There is a very interesting section of that on the doctrine of perseverance. Perseverance. And it is that that I want to talk to you about this morning. In a brief and unambiguous statement, the Westminster Confession says this, They whom God has accepted in his beloved Son, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, listen, can neither totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now, you probably would call that the doctrine of eternal security. But the Westminster divines did not use that term. That is not a biblical term as such. What they understood was that the Bible promises that salvation is forever. That if you are ever saved, you are forever saved. And Scripture is full of promises as to the perseverance of true Christians. Listen to John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. 
Or John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He who believes in him is not judged, says verse 18. John 6, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will lose none of them but raise him up at the last day. John 10, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Uh, They can never perish, and no one is able to pluck them out of my hand, uh, my Father's hand, for I and my Father are greater than all. Jude closes his little epistle by saying, Now unto him who is able to keep you, to keep you. Paul says, He who begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. There's just endless statements about that. The Westminster Confession then accurately affirms that saving faith can't fail. It cannot fail. If you are ever a Christian, you are forever a Christian. Now, at this point, it's crucial to understand what perseverance does not mean before we talk about what it does mean. It does not mean that Christians do not fail or stumble. Christians do not fail or stumble. It does not mean that Christians don't fail or stumble seriously. The Westminster Confession goes on to say this. Nevertheless, believers may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and neglect of their means of of preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Great statement. In other words, perseverance doesn't mean perfection. doesn't mean perfection. Salvation can't fail, but we can fail. Salvation won't fail, we will. We will persevere. Through those failures, John 8, 31, Jesus said, whoever continues in my word is my mathetes alethos, my real disciple. Whoever continues. To speak of the of this doctrine as the security of the believer, eternal security, is not wrong in itself, but it sort of pushes the issue up to heaven. When you talk about eternal security, you're talking about God, right, securing you. But theologians understood that while that is absolutely true, God secures you by giving you persevering life. So that the perseverance of the saints is a more careful and accurate statement. It is not true that someone is secure no matter how deeply they fall into sin and unfaithfulness if that includes the denial of Christ. If people turn their back on Christ, deny the gospel, deny their faith in Christ, They give evidence that they never were saved. They went out from us because they were not of us, 1 John 2, 19. 
And so I say what the Westminster Confession says. A believer may sin, sin seriously, sin repeatedly, but he will not abandon himself to sin. He cannot come under the total dominion of sin. He will not lose his faith in Christ and have it replaced by denial and unbelief. Nor will a true believer shun holiness and fully embrace sin. He can't, 1 John 3.10, because he has a seed of a new life in him. Nor will a true believer fail to love the Lord even if that love grows cold, nor will he fail to love others even if that love isn't what it ought to be. The doctrine of perseverance is this, that God has given you an eternal life that perseveres. The gift that God gives you is a permanent gift of grace and mercy by his sovereign will that sustains you to the very end. It is a life that cannot die, and it manifests itself in a number of ways. Any idea of salvation that leaves out security is a distortion of the truth, and any idea of security that leaves out perseverance is a distortion of the truth. Now, to help you understand this, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, I just want you to look at this wonderful benediction in verses 3 to 9. I'm going to read them to you. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him now, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That is an immense statement. It's just an incredibly significant statement. And it was written by the apostle Peter who is the right person to write a section on perseverance, don't you think? If any New Testament person was ever prone to failure, it was Peter. In fact, um, it seems that he's the closest to Judas. No one was closer to Judas than Peter in terms of the seriousness of his sins. Peter understands what it is to fail, but he also understands the persevering nature of his salvation. None of our Lord's disciples stumbled more miserably than Peter other than Judas. He was impetuous, he was erratic, he was vacillating, he was weak, he was cowardly, he was hot-headed, he was selfish, he overestimated his own strength. In fact, uh, he received the strongest rebuke of any disciple when Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. 
And by the way, that low point occurred immediately after he had said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus had said to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My father in heaven did. He went from being under the influence of God to being under the influence of Satan almost immediately. Peter is proof that a true believer can stumble but not fall. Judas, not being a true believer, stumbled and fell into hell. Peter persevered through his stumblings. Jesus even said to him in Luke 22, Satan desires to have you that he may sift you like wheat. And then Jesus said, but when you are converted, when you come through this and out the other side, you'll be able to strengthen the brethren. Why would that happen? Because Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. You have the intercessory work of the Lord sustaining your faith. You have the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 sustaining your faith. And your faith is a component in a gift of eternal life that cannot die. So based upon the nature of eternal life, the intercessory work of Christ, the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit, we persevere. We persevere. You will see a model of Christ's intercession, if you would like, by reading John chapter 17. We don't have time to do that this morning. Now I'm going to say something um, personal. If I could lose my salvation, I would. I wouldn't want to, but I would. If it was possible, I would lose it. If it was possible to forfeit my salvation by something I did or did not do, yeah, I would lose my salvation. Guess what? So would you. In your flesh, you can't hold on to your salvation. But we don't live in the flesh. We possess eternal life and we live in the power of the Spirit. And we live under the ministry of Christ who is able to save forever those who draw near to him since he always lives to make intercession for us. So he's always interceding for us. The Spirit is always interceding in us. And this is eternal life which we possess. And eternal life by definition is forever. The theology of salvation says we were chosen, we were called, we were justified, we are being sanctified, and one day we will be glorified and nobody gets lost in the process. It was not up to us to be chosen. It was not up to us to be effectually called. It was not up to us to be regenerated. All up to God. If it was up to me, I'd lose my salvation. If I could lose it, I would lose it. And so would you. But the promise of Jeremiah is still true. Jeremiah 32, 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That's the essence of eternal life. It is an everlasting covenant providing an everlasting salvation through an everlasting life, secured doubly by the intercession of the the Son and the Spirit. There are no dropouts. No dropouts. You say, well, what about the warnings? What about all the warnings in Hebrews? Those are warnings of people who know the truth and haven't yet believed it unto salvation. Now, this is not to say that people who accept Jesus 
in some moment, pray some prayer, are necessarily secure. You're not secure because of some past event. You're not secure because of some past prayer. You, you can't hold on to that. Peter understood that we are secure by a persevering life. And he unfolds here how it manifests itself. So you can do a little bit of uh, self-examination, okay? Verse 5, the beginning of the verse says, we are protected by the power of God. We're protected by the power of God, protected from falling, protected from losing our salvation by the power of God. Of God, But let's see the components of that, okay? Let's look at the text, verse 3 and 4. First of all, perseverance demonstrates itself with a hope that does not fail. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a perpetual hope that cannot die. We are given an undying hope. In contrast to human hopes, which fade and fail, eternal life manifests, manifests itself in an undying hope, a hope that cannot fade, that cannot die, that cannot disappoint. Hebrews 6.19 says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It is a hope both sure and steadfast. You know you're a true believer when you have a hope that cannot die. It is a living hope. It is living because your life is eternal. This is the heart of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You have life from God. You have the life of God in your soul. And that life manifests as part of its components a living hope. A living hope. That's what we hold on to. And what is the reality of that hope? Verse 4, it is to obtain an inheritance. We are looking for heaven. We believe that we are going to heaven. We haven't seen it. We haven't experienced it. And P.S., nobody else has gone there and come back. Just to let you know. We live in hope. And what is our hope? that there is for us an inheritance in heaven which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved. Imperishable, aftartas, not corruptible, not liable to pass away, not capable of being plundered by an enemy. That's what our Lord meant when he said, lay your treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. Our inheritance cannot be plundered. It cannot be stolen. Demons can't get to it. Satan can't get to it. It is eternally safe with God. It is also undefiled, amantas, unstained, un, uh, it is not subject to defect would be a way to say that, not subject to, uh, to pollution. It can't be tarnished. Then it will not fade away. Another word, amarantas. It can't decay. It never loses its supernatural beauty. Is never diminished. Unlike everything else in this life, which is corruptible, which decays, which fades, we have a salvation that is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. 
that is realized and fulfilled for us in the future. And for now, it is reserved in heaven. Perfect passive participle to guard, to keep, to reo. It is guarded there. The perfect underlies the, uh, underlines the idea of uh, an inheritance is already existing, presently, continually being guarded by God. The safest place is heaven. We believe that. And if you're a believer, that hope is alive in you. That's why you go on the way you go on living to the honor of our Lord. Heaven will never know an invasion. No treasure there will ever be stolen, defaced, defiled, or corroded. It is there sealed forever. So how do you know if you're a persevering believer? How do you know if you really possess eternal life? Because you are living with a hope for what awaits you in heaven. We have a heavenly perspective. If you see somebody that claims to be a Christian, but they seem completely consumed with this world, remind them of what the Apostle John said, that if you love the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in you. Or remind them of what James said, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. You can tell a true believer. You can tell persevering life. You can tell the eternal life because those who have it manifest it with a living hope. They live for the glory of heaven. All those people who are vegetarians, when they get to heaven, are going to wish they ate a steak every day and lived half as long. Not only do we have a living hope, but we have a living faith that cannot fail, a living hope that cannot fail. And this is the, kind of the main thrust. Look at verse 5. We're protected by the power of God. This is a key phrase, through faith, through faith, through faith. The means that God uses to save us is faith. The means that God uses to, to keep us is faith. It is uh, the gift of faith. It is a gift, Ephesians 2. It is a faith that cannot die. We have a living hope and we have a living faith. We never lose our faith. We're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have a faith that cannot fail. Rich promise guarantees that if you look at your life and no matter what comes and what goes, your faith never fails. You know it's the real thing. Hey, there are a lot of people who appear to respond to the gospel. Matthew 13, right? The parable of the soils. A little bit of something or other pops up and it looks like it might bear fruit. Trouble comes, trials come, and it dies fruitlessly. That's the false faith, superficial faith. Where there's real faith, there's a steady growth of that faith, even in the face of difficulty, as we will see in a moment. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time simply speaks of a salvation that reaches its fullness in the future. It is now prepared. It is at hand. It has already been accomplished. And we are protected. That's a military term, meaning we are protected, kept safe by the supreme, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, almighty God whose power is displayed in us through a faith that perseveres. Our continued faith in Christ is the instrument that God uses to protect us. 
He didn't save us apart from faith. He doesn't keep us apart from faith. I've written many books through the years about this idea that you can believe and then not believe and you're still saved. You can be an unbelieving believer or a believing unbeliever and go to heaven. I wrote a number of books on that. If you're a true believer, you'll always believe. You'll always believe because you're kept by a living hope and you're kept by a living faith. This faith, then, is not passive. We talk about eternal security. That sounds passive. This is active. We persevere through a living hope. We persevere through a living faith. And all of it stretches forward, trusting God to the final reward in glory. And then thirdly, we are protected by a living strength that cannot fail. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God sustains us by means of our hope. He sustains us by means of our faith. And he sustains us by means of strength through trials. So that, this is amazing, verse 6, in the trial, the various trials that come, you greatly rejoice. They may catch you by surprise. Remember, the readers of this epistle are facing life-threatening persecution. Fear is a very natural response. But Peter says, in the various trials of life, and theirs were life and death trials, I mean, where they could actually lose their lives, real persecution. Peter says, your strength will sustain you through those. People who lose their faith in a trial are the rocky soil. People who move away from their professed faith because of the love of the things of the world are, are the weedy soil of Matthew 13. Real faith goes through trials, emerges out the other side, and says with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Real faith emerges from trials stronger than before. Something good about being old, not everything's good about being old, but there are some things. One of them is, I have been through so many trials. I've been through brain tumors with my kids. I've been through my wife with a broken neck, fractured C2 and C3. I've been through all kinds of trials in ministry. I've been through a um, blood clot situation that should have taken my life. I've been through disappointment of people who worked around me. I've been through mutiny. I've been through betrayal. I've been through disloyalty. I've been through my own foibles, my own errors. I've been through it all. I've lived through every imaginable kind of death and disaster and people close to me. I've seen it all. And I will just tell you this, the longer I live, the stronger becomes my faith. And when it comes out the other side of these trials, no trial that I have ever experienced in my entire life has done anything but strengthen my faith. No trial. No trial. I say to pastors all the time, the greatest thing that will ever happen to you in your ministry is the hardest trial you'll ever go through. Because when you come out the other side, you get a gift. And what is that gift? The proof of your faith, verse 7. You know, what I find with young people, it's probably true with you, 
I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm sure many of you have asked the Lord to save you more than once. Right? Of course. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm really a Christian Lord. I, I, you know, I'm pray the prayer again. We struggle with doubt. You know what removes that doubt? That your faith is real? Trials. Trial after trial after trial after trial after trial. And you come out, you come out with a stronger faith, a stronger faith, and nothing ever breaks that faith. Nothing. You see it in the Apostle Paul, who's being shredded, ripped to ribbons in writing his second letter to the Corinthians. It says, it's like a messenger from Satan, like a demon, tearing up the church in Corinth. But then he says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. And I welcome trials and suffering and persecution because it makes me strong. It's exactly what it does. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because the trying of your faith produces what? Patience, and patience has a perfecting work. Real faith emerges from trials stronger than before. Trials in themselves are not joyful. They produce distress for a little while, he says. But, but like fire that burns off the dross, and that's the point, what is left is a stronger faith. What emerges is more precious than gold. It, uh, it is a gift. So I, I look at my life, and I don't ask, am I a Christian anymore? I don't, I don't ask, is my faith real? It's just been tested and tested and tested and tested and tested. From the first time at the age of 19, I was thrown out of a car going 75 miles an hour, hit the highway and slid about 125 yards on my rear end, ended up three months in bed trying to figure out that the Lord was trying to get my attention. To this very day, I've been through trials that have done nothing but increase my confidence in God. The greatest possible gift that you could ever have in this life, is to know your salvation is real, right? And you will know that as you experience a living hope, a living faith, and a living strength that pushes you through the other side of trials. And this is the proof, verse 7, of your faith. How valuable is that? It's more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, because it shows you that you're going to be found in the end to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do you know you're going to get there? How do you know you're going to show up in heaven? When you see your faith tested at the maximum level and you come out the other side, strong. True believers then persevere by a living hope, a living faith, living strength. Those are all the pledges of eternal glory. And then fourthly, we're protected by a love that cannot fail. A love that cannot fail. Verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. That's a profound statement about what it means to be a Christian. Simply, it means to love God. Christ. It means to love Christ. To love Christ. How obvious is that? I read some, something that somebody wrote about me. They write lots of interesting things about me. But I read yesterday just a little tiny line from somebody who said, 
It's obvious MacArthur loves Christ. Oh, thank you. Because of all the things that are written about me, that would, that would be something I would hope someone would pick up. I do love Christ. That's why I've spent 25 years of my preaching years preaching through the four gospels because I never get enough of him. And then going back and writing commentaries on it. Now I'm going back again and preaching through John. That's how you know you're a believer. Look, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. So if you're damned, if you don't love him, if you love him, you won't be damned. That's what defines a believer. The most defining thing about you is you love Christ. That, that essentially is our focus to fulfill the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God has revealed himself most clearly to us in his Son. And to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, essentially, is to love Christ that way. So we have a, we have a, an, an unfailing love. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, you do what? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. There's a kind of a heresy floating around uh, today about this cross-centered sanctification that if you do anything out of duty, it's a sin. That um, if it's not the Spirit doing it through you as you're swept away in emotions contemplating the cross, it's a sin. So, here's your dilemma. I could go to an R-rated movie. That's a sin. Or I could go to church because I think it's right. And, and that's a sin. Because I think it's right, so I'm going to do it. So you can pick your sin. It's both the flesh. This is a trap. This is a horrible trap. You do what is right before God. If you love me, you what? You keep my commandments. They're not all indicatives. There are imperatives Jesus didn't say, if you love me, sit around until I move you. If you love me, do nothing. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The very essence of a commandment is a demand that requires duty. If you love me, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know, you can read my heart. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. There is always a command attached to an expression of love. We love him. And we demonstrate it by obedience. Uh, number five. You look at your life, how do you know if you're a believer? You have a living hope, a living faith, a living strength and power, a living, sustained, unfailing love for God in Christ, and you have an unfailing joy, an unfailing joy. Verse 8 says, you haven't seen him, but you love him. You don't see him now, but you believe in him. That's that living faith. So you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
It's not some kind of moderated joy. It's, a, it's an abounding joy. That's why when you come together like this morning, you sing with all your heart. This is the joy expressed. Listen, you persevere because you have an eternal life, and that eternal life is manifest by a living hope, a living faith, a living power, a living love, and a living, sustaining, unfailing joy. And the end of it all, verse 19, or verse 9, you obtain the final outcome of your faith. Salvation in its final form. Salvation from the presence of sin in glorification. If you're a true believer, your, your life will persevere. It will never fail. But it isn't just God on his own holding on to you. It's God giving you life that cannot die, that manifests itself in these wonderful realities. And you can count on this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it till the day of Christ. Father, we thank you for granting to us a faith that perseveres, a life that cannot die. Thank you. Thank you for calling us effectually. Thank you for regenerating us. Thank you for justifying us. Thank you that the process of sanctification is going on now as out of love we obey. Use these young people, Lord. Use them, sustain them. May all of these virtues be expressed in their life to the fullest. May their joy be inexpressible and full of exultation. May their love be profound and undying and may they never, like the church at Ephesus, leave that first fiery love. May they grow stronger and stronger through trials and and may their faith flourish and their hope ascend to a brighter and brighter anticipation of what you have prepared for us. Thank you for the grace of all these marvelous, incomprehensible gifts. We love you. May we manifest that in all we do. In Christ's name, amen.